0: but if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish protocol or the Northern Irish protocol fully implemented. I'm gonna miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe
1: Editor in Brussels. And I'm Colm O'Mungine, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor, normally in Dublin but now once again back home for one week anyway in my kitchen in Kildare. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and in Dublin.
0: This week, on again, off again, will they, won't they? The tortured standoff between London and Brussels on getting negotiations back up and running after the drama of last week's EU summit.
1: We'll examine in detail what went wrong, why the UK was so upset at a six-paragraph statement by EU leaders and how both sides patched things up. Was it all a piece of
0: theatre or a
1: genuine breakdown?
0: While Michel Barnier was told not to come to London on Monday, his colleague Maros Shevchevich was welcomed with open arms to a meeting of the Joint Committee to talk about the Northern Ireland Protocol. In contrast to the toxic
1: mood elsewhere, that meeting was described as positive and constructive. We'll explore what's happening with the protocol and whether or not it'll be ready to go on January the 1st. But first, Tony, one Twitter wit described in the past week, the proceedings like a bad episode of Normal People, on again, off again.
0: Yeah, it was, back, it was Wednesday when the talks actually were signalled to be back on, but while most people suspected the talks would, would be resumed, uh, it was never really clear until Wednesday afternoon when there was an, uh, another phone call between David Frost, the UK's chief negotiator, and his opposite number, Michel Barnier. It was their third phone call that week. So it, it took a lot of, I suppose it, it was like a strange courtship by Michel Barnier to get the UK to resume negotiations. That all came about, of course, following that summit last week where EU leaders gave a fairly lukewarm assessment of where the negotiations were. They, they dropped the word intensive as we discussed last week, and instead just said that the talks should continue. Uh, And more critically, they said that the moves to reach agreement should really come from the UK side. That obviously angered and disappointed London. Boris Johnson said the talks were all but dead. And even though Michael Gove, the Cabinet Office Minister, said over the weekend that the talks were ajar, you could really see that London was... Making Michel Barnier wait, and then by by Wednesday morning, Michel Barnier was trying to press as many buttons as possible by saying, "Yes, of course we will intensify the talks, and yes, of course both sides have to compromise, and of course." we accept the and respect the sovereignty of the uk in these negotiations and of course we can start working on legal texts jointly we can start drafting these texts jointly so that that seemed to be enough for the uk and lo and behold both sides drew up a ten point joint statement of organising principles, which went into quite some graphic detail about how the negotiations would run for the next few weeks. Right. Uh, and then everything was back on.
1: Okay. Well, this is going to get technical. So if you'll forgive me, I'm going to pour myself a cup of strong coffee here in the background. Tony, I, I, the- I'm
0: sure I heard ice, ice cubes there, Colin. <laughs> Are you being truthful with the listeners? I am,
1: I am being truthful with the listeners. So, Michel Barnier, as the statement you were talking about, at around nine, nine o'clock in the morning UK time, he was in front of the European Parliament and he was talking about the, the months... That had gone on at the negotiation table and he said there will have to be a spirit of compromise on both sides. And he talked about legal texts. Now, the mention of compromise and the mention of legal texts seems to be the key thing. That seems to be what how, unlocked David Frost's statement, which came out at about five o'clock that evening.
0: Yes, I mean, there's there's two schools of thought here. One school of thought is that because Boris Johnson had built up this summit as the deadline for a deal, And then, obviously, no deal happened. And because he's facing so much domestic pressure on COVID, we've had the whole Manchester standoff, a lot of unease among backbenchers that he really needed to have a a fight and that he almost picked a fight for fairly shallow reasons. Uh, The fact that the EU just used a few words here and there that they had previously, where they had previously used other words that the UK wanted to hear. The second school of thought is that London was genuinely disappointed and angered at The fact that the European Council simply refused to use the word intensify, which is kind of code for getting into the tunnel, getting in for that last push, and also that they seemed to put all the onus on the UK to make the compromises and those two things together, as well as the fact that the EU was still not getting getting down to jointly drafting texts. This was seen uh, as a real misjudgment by the EU side and that they were underestimating the determination of people in the UK government to go for no deal if if, if they're not being treated with respect right. and, and so on. So I think that debate will run, but we are where we are now. They, they, obviously, Michel Barnier did what was needed. And I think there's an acknowledgement on the UK side that the commission was fairly grown up about the way they responded to this. Uh, and he used the word sovereignty i think five times in his speech to the european parliament on wednesday morning so that that obviously got things back up and running
1: there is red meat being distributed on both sides though because About two hours after Michel Barnier spoke to the European Parliament, Charles Michel, the president of the European Council, issued his report on the European Council summit's conclusions. And he hardened up the language in it. He quoted Theresa May, Brexit means Brexit. And he also said in both languages, in case anyone missed it, that the UK couldn't have its cake and eat it and that there was compromise required. So his language, as as reflected perhaps in, in the summit, was quite hard. Barnier... And in fairness, he said this, he said there would be intensive talks over the coming weeks to trigger the final stages immediately after that summit. He, again, sounds the more conciliatory note with the UK, as he has since the beginning.
0: Yeah, uh, it, that's a very good point, Colm. And it, and actually, Charles Michel was on his feet in the Parliament just before Michel Barnier spoke. So so he delivered that statement and then it, it was published a short time later, as, as you say. This was classic good cop, bad cop. Charles Michel, who is the president of the European Council, he's a former Belgian prime minister. He's been in the job about a year, just under a year. He was a lot more aggressive, I thought, in telling the UK, if you want to have access to our single market, then don't be surprised if we want to keep access to your fishing waters. And yes, Brexit means Brexit. You have to take responsibility for the outcome that that Brexit will bring about this divergence of, of two of two trading blocks and, you know, th- this is your choice. Then Michel Barnier followed up with, with a, a lot more conciliatory language, although Michel Barnier did say that he entirely supported the European Council conclusions. And, you know, there is still quite a bit of pushback in Brussels that the initial draft of that summit conclusions did say... The EU should intensify negotiations, and called on its negotiator to intensify negotiations. They dropped the word "intensify" in a follow-up draft because the word had been used back in June after the high-level conference between Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen and Charles Michel. It was used again after a phone call between Boris Johnson and von der Leyen on the third of October, and it was kind of felt that this was just simply overusing a word that you know ultimately has a limited resonance when the negotiations were intensifying anyway, and also that the initial draft said to Michel Barnier, you should do this, you should intensify X, Y, Z, but it was felt that there had to be a signal sent to the UK as a balancing sentence to say the UK also has to move in order for for an agreement to to be achieved, and people will say, look, of course the EU is going to say the UK has to move, it's in a negotiation, you know, the UK is the adversary across the table, so it's sort of natural, if you like, that the EU would uh, take that particular stance. So, you know, there is still a suspicion in Brussels that this was all a bit contrived on the UK side. One counter view that I heard was that this was something akin to, if you remember back in 2018, Theresa May had negotiated and concluded the first withdrawal agreement. But then she discovered she couldn't get it through the House of Commons and that there was going to be a vote in the House of Commons which she was going to lose badly in early December of that year. The vote was pooled, if you'll recall, and then she went to the European Council that December to try and get some language, some kind. yeah, to try and get some language from EU leaders, and she didn't get it, uh, and she was very disappointed. And there's, you know, one fairly well-placed person I spoke to on this said, you know, it felt a bit like back then this real disappointment that the that the EU just d- couldn't go that extra yard or two to provide language that would. Give Boris Johnson some support, and that would uh, keep you know rest of backbenchers off his back. You know, there's a there's a lot of disquiet around COVID, as, as I mentioned earlier. So so that's a, a flavour of the sentiment in in London, as opposed to this view in Brussels that this was all a bit of theatre just to to get Boris Johnson off the hook.
1: There was some before we leave the sort of rhetorical flourishes. There was some harder stuff in Michel Barnier's speech, and he said Canada and Japan are not precedents and that this idea of, you know, offering the UK, Canada, is just not on the table. They're looking for a zero tariff, zero quota basis. He says it has no precedent whether with Canada or Japan and is being negotiated in a context of regulatory divergence, not convergence. And he goes on and reiterates the level playing field and governance and says that fisheries is going to be one of those issues as well. He basically says that, you know, nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. There is hard language with Michel Barnier as well that lays out the complexity of the talks. I suppose we have progress On process, you might say, but on the issues themselves, they they still are as much at odds as ever.
0: Yeah, and I think this is because when Boris Johnson issued his statement, effectively putting the the talks in jeopardy and saying that that Britain should prepare for no deal, I mean, it it seemed like his main gripe was that the EU simply was not going to offer the UK a Canada-style free trade agreement like they had promised and Michael Gove repeated this charge in the House of Commons the following Monday. And and this irritates officials over in Brussels no end because they say, look, first of all, the EU never... Explicitly said, yes, we will give you a Canada type free trade agreement. What they did say is that by a process of elimination, if you take all of the UK's red lines, they want to be out of the single market, out of the customs union, out of that whole regulatory orbit, then what you're left with is a Canada style free trade agreement. But that's not the same as to say that's what we're going to give you because the Canada agreement was. For Canada, it's a completely different kettle of fish, if you like, (laughs) not to to bring fish into the debate uh, at this early stage, but it's a completely different prospect and its economy is is different. Uh, And again, you know, I've made this point before. There isn't the time for it either. There isn't the time for it because the Canada... Free trade agreement took seven years. It was a line-by-line negotiation on tariffs and quotas. Even though it did abolish a lot of uh, quotas, there still were quotas in, in terms of agriculture and other products. And, and there simply wasn't the time to do that with the U.K., but I think the the bigger point is that the UK is a huge economy that is already deeply embedded in the EU single market. All those companies are already trading under EU rules at the moment. And if you suddenly take off the shackles of EU standards and EU regulations, then... The argument is that that gives those companies who are already there a huge advantage over their European counterparts. So that's why the level playing field is so important to the EU side.
1: Just, I mean, see, seeing as as we're here, on and you, and you mentioned FISH, If these legal texts begin to be worked on, and this is, you know, agreed documents on all of the issues, some of which are already broadly agreed on and across the line, but there are the difficult ones which you've just mentioned. There was a reluctance, you were saying before, on the European side to engage in the legal texts because fish would be left to last, the pressure would come on, the squeeze would come on the eight countries that are most affected by all of this and the EU, from its own point of view, from the point of view of the fishermen, would get a suboptimal outcome.
0: Yeah, so this is probably a a good, Chance to just explain to people why this idea of joint legal text is is so important to the UK and why why they keep mentioning this. I suppose if you're looking for a clear victory for the UK as a result of the standoff, you could say, well, the EU now has agreed. Michel Barnier has agreed that they will start working on joint legal texts. Now, at, at the outset, it's worth reminding people that the withdrawal agreement, which took, as you know, th- almost three years to conclude, was you know, a very difficult and almost traumatic experience for Theresa May and, and her negotiating team because the withdrawal agreement was an EU treaty. It's based on Article 50, which is part of the Lisbon Treaty, which meant that what two, the two sides negotiated was an EU treaty. And it meant that the EU's initial legal draft was the baseline of those negotiations. And in a sense, Theresa May and her negotiator, Ollie Robbins, were trying to catch up and stamp their mark on what was an EU treaty. This time around, of course, it's an international treaty. It's It's two sides negotiating a future relationship. The UK has been very keen that its initial draft is prominent and is there reflected in the final treaty. Now, as you mentioned, the parallelism, uh, this idea of, of nothing being agreed till everything is agreed. Yes, the EU did not want to start jointly drafting text at this stage. So what's been happening is that both sides have been working across 11 negotiating tables, as they're described So these would be officials who'd be experts on agriculture or goods or the Erasmus program or Hurt the Horizon science program, nuclear cooperation. And what they're doing is they're each working on their own drafts and sort of running it by their opposite numbers refining redrafting but they're not actually sitting down to draft a joint text together and the concern on the EU side was that that would if you start doing that then those texts get closed off and you're not you're, le- you're left without the kind of leverage that you would have at the end so in other so there's words there's
1: a, a big non-room full of non-papers at the moment
0: yeah but those papers are important because what in that sort of informal process both sides have been testing each other's margin for maneuver they've been testing each other's red lines so that's a kind of a provisional outline of of where things need to go so that once you do start the the joint drafting then the the non-contentious areas can be closed off fairly quickly and you know we are if, if it's today is what the 23rd of October we only have two or three weeks left to, to, to draw up this treaty. So it's a good thing that all that work has been done and that, you know, once they do start drafting stuff together, then they, they, they can pull together the treaty. But of course, you know, when, when it comes to the difficult stuff, the level playing field, fisheries and governance, those drafts are going to be the really key ones uh, well, um, fisheries then, is
1: seen as, uh, is being increasingly seen as the most difficult of those because not only is it a particularly difficult thing, and as we've discussed before, you know, the Belgians citing 1666 fishing rights in, in UK waters. If a Eurosceptic move by the UK in the form of Brexit is seen to be rewarded by them reclaiming sovereignty over their waters and an increase in fish for their fishermen, that will be heeded in France where Marine Le Pen will use that against Emmanuel Macron, who's very, Macron obviously, pro-Europe, Le Pen, anti-Europe, and there is a a harsh political reality and real consequences on an election in the medium term that will make this an even more difficult nut to crack.
0: Yeah, I mean, this this is absolutely down to national politics, and that's why fisheries is going to be very hard. But I would say, I mean, I, I get the impression that the UK is... Happier to paint fisheries as the last big tough issue because you can see how it's a tempting narrative to say it's 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 the Brits versus the French, it's Boris versus Macron, Boris Johnson versus Emmanuel Macron, and you can see how that kind of narrative would would you know provide a certain drama and tabloid fodder to yeah. whatever comes like, out I, I at, the see, end, at the end. I can see of the it.
1: Napoleon caricatures and, and and Nelson already. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, I think to the to the EU, the, the level playing field is a lot more fundamental and fundamentally important because, again, if they are going to open up their single market for the UK for a long time to come, they just want to make sure that the constraints that are brought to bear on European companies when it comes to standards and when it comes to subsidies that those constraints will also be there on UK companies and it'll be something that is actionable and not something that is just based on an understanding or trust us or, you know, principles. As I think I mentioned last week, the EU is looking at this toolbox where you have got four different elements you've got high level principles on this is on state aid and you know how far subsidies can can be provided for both sides you would have an independent competition authority on the UK side that would be in touch with the European Commission that can take action against any inappropriate subsidies of a company you would have a dispute settlement mechanism and then you'd also have this autonomous retaliate, retaliation option for both sides so that if something does go to arbitration then that might take a long time. And in the meantime, the EU can, or the UK, if, if, if you like, can take action horizontally. So in other words, you, if, if there's a dispute over subsidising one particular sector, you can take action on aviation if things get really acute. Ultimately as well, they would want a European company to be able to take action through the UK courts if there is a breach of these state aid rules. And I think the real problem there is at Darning Street, particularly people like Dominic Cummings, according to folklore, at least, that he wants to have no constraints whatsoever on the discretion of a UK government in the future to spend money where, where it sees fit.
1: To turn to Ireland, and you know, we're, we're looking at difficult issues there, but how have things been going on the Joint Committee, just for anyone who doesn't know what the Joint Committee, in brief... What is it and how is it going?
0: The Joint Committee was set up under the Withdrawal Agreement to bring both sides together at a high political level to both implement the Withdrawal Agreement and to deal with disputes when they arise. And the, with the Joint Committee is dealing with four, uh, I think, separate protocols that are attached to the Withdrawal Agreement. Uh, of course, the most important one from our point of view is the Northern Ireland Protocol and the, the Joint Committee has met now, I think, on four occasions to see how that's being implemented. Now, as we've talked about before on the podcast, the, the general picture is that the protocol puts a border on the Irish Sea for uh, regulatory purposes and customs purposes. Goods going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland will face regulatory and custom customs formalities. And what has happened since the treaty was negotiated is that you've had this push and pull between both sides. The UK saying we want to limit and reduce and whittle down and whittle away as much as we can the customs checks and formalities and, and regulatory checks and controls on goods coming in. The EU have been saying, Well look, you signed up to this in the in the treaty we have to protect the single market and make sure that there's not going to be any hard border on the island of Ireland. So you have to abide by what you've agreed to. And that's been quite a difficult process because there is this an inherent contradiction in the treaty in that the protocol provides for these checks and controls on goods going to Northern Ireland, but it also provides for unfettered access for Northern Ireland goods going to Great Britain and for there to be no barriers to trade between both Northern Ireland and Great Britain. So you know, both sides have a, if you like, a a valid argument to to, to push their case. But I think in contrast to to previous uh, meetings of the Joint Committee, the one on Monday in London seems to have gone extremely well. Why? Well, I think it seems like the UK side have started to engage a lot more openly on building uh, border control posts uh, at Larne and Belfast and Warren Point. These are for the checking and controlling of live animals coming in from Great Britain and the rest of the world, for animal products, for food products. They are working on the VAT system so that Northern Ireland can plug into the EU's VAT IT system. And I suppose much more understandably from from a, a, a kind of a normal person's point of view, this idea of whether or not the EU would have an office in Belfast. And what has been proposed there for the EU side is, okay, they were going to drop their initial demand to have an office in Belfast and said, okay, we need to carry out our work effectively because the protocol provides for EU officials being able to monitor their UK counterparts in implementing the protocol because, of course, what UK customs and veterinary officials in Northern Ireland are doing is they are implementing EU law and yet they are from a third country. So this is completely unprecedented the protocol provides for eu officials to do that job with them to to oversee what they're doing right. and, and 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 the the ask is basically we need 15 people to be kind of based with their british counterparts at the ports to have a desk a computer and to be able to to plug into the uk's own it system and that these people would be there kind of permanently they, they would be resident in Northern Ireland, not flying in three times a year, which was the initial offer from the UK. So what's uh, the
1: compromise between permanent and temporary? I take it it's not port cabins
0: Well, first of all, when you're talking about the infrastructure at the points of entry at the ports, yes, there, there has to be a, a permanent infrastructure there and it's not going to be port cabins It might be port cabins just to, to tie things over. No, I meant the office. The, yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah. Oh, the office. Yeah. Well, I mean, overall, the the, the point is that it's not like the, UK, the EU are going to have an office in Belfast where these officials will kind of come back to or, or, or base themselves out of. The EU officials will, will be based with their UK counterparts at the ports. It's been likened to what you have at St Pancras Station in London, where you have French and Belgian and British immigration staff working not not side by side but a few meters apart to monitor and do passport controls and so on that's the kind of model that the EU is saying they're they're pretty much happy with and it seems that on this occasion Michael gove who's Maris shevkovich's opposite number he seemed at this meeting on Monday to be fairly open to that idea although it's not done and dusted just yet. Overall, I think what the meeting delivered was a message to their technical staff in UK customs, in the UK departments of agriculture, just go and work with your European counterparts in the European Commission and find a solution that will make this work. It's not going to be easy. You know, there's a lot of there's still a, a big gap in terms of supermarket produce going from a depot in GB over to Northern Ireland. Those consignments contain a lot of food, like you know, pre-prepared ham sandwiches, et cetera. Under EU rules, they have to be checked because it's food coming in from a third country. So how do you do that in a way that doesn't completely disrupt the flow of supermarket produce to Northern Ireland, supermarket chains. Those issues are still going to be very, very technically difficult to manage. But what's happened at this meeting on Monday is both Michael Gove and Maros Sheftovich have said, you know, we are giving you political direction to, to go and work out some kind of solution that will make everybody happy.
1: So that being said, things are going to intensify. Michelle Barnier and David Frost are going to have in- intensive engagement over the next while. How is it looking in the immediate term? Will there be meetings over this weekend?
0: Yeah, I mean, the the initial stretch of meetings will be from yesterday, Thursday, the 22nd, right through to the 25th, which is Sunday. So they are going to work over this weekend. And then I think the idea is that they will work every day, including weekends, unless it's decided otherwise. So this will be essentially the tunnel, if you like. Right, no public
1: updates then. We won't be presumably seeing
0: detailed interviews on Mar
1: on Sunday. Yeah. Updating well, us this, to the pro- detailed the progress of things.
0: Yeah, so so what what they have said is that the on the on the European Commission side, they will continue to brief member states through what's called the working party, and they had a meeting on Wednesday night to just take stock of this getting the talks back up and running. Those briefings will continue, so member states will kind of know what's happening in the negotiations. But if there are wholesale leaks. From the working party, from member states officials and so on, then that might be closed off (laughs) a particular route. So obviously journalists like myself will still try to keep (laughs) messing things up. But we'll see. We'll see how how these things go. But I suppose it is important to, to emphasize that even though they have got the talks back underway, there is still a genuine fear that the gaps are too big on both sides on things like governance and fisheries and the level playing field and and state aid and they may not get an agreement but at least they are talking and they have a much more intensified structure now to, to keep negotiating and try and get a deal over the line.
1: Okay. All right, well I'm gonna pour myself another cup of coffee now and start to edit this podcast. So for me, Colombo Munga on RT's Deputy Foreign Editor in Kildare, that's it from me.
0: And for me, Tony Connolly in Brussels. RT's Europe Editor in Brussels. We'll be back with more Brexit Republic next week. Thanks for listening.